We're in the middle of a series called the Spirit Series, and in fact, this is kind of like a, a sub-series of our greater theme this year, which is a presence-driven life, okay? So that, that essentially the messages all fit in with that grander theme, and then this is kind of a more specific uh, series within that grander scheme. And so we, uh, because, as you guys know by now, if you've been here, that uh, the Holy Spirit was synonymous with the presence of God. The, the people, the early church, the Old Testament uh, writers, um, and the prophets all considered the Holy Spirit as God's personal presence. And so um, that's why it fits so well in this theme. But uh, so, so anyway, what, one of the, the passions I have, uh, or urgencies I have, and I always start off with this to give you sort of an understanding, like, why are we emphasizing this so much? Because it's such an important part of our faith. And part of the issue that uh, I think is an issue anyway is that the, the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, gets short shrifted in our churches. Um, he often gets neglected uh, kind of put out to the periphery. So, of course, we give lip service to the Holy Spirit, but um, a lot of churches neglect him, uh, in my opinion. And so you don't really get a, you don't get much theology on the Holy Spirit. You don't get, you don't hear much about the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you could go a really long time in a lot of churches and not hear one single message on him. You might get one a year at the day of Pentecost or something. Um, but my, my urgency is that the Holy Spirit is at the heart of everything in New Testament theology and our experience with God. Um, and so it's, you know, you don't, it's not only in churches. You see this in scholarship as well, where a lot of people who write, they'll write entire books on the theology of Paul the Apostle, and there'll be like two pages on the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's a symptom. That shows a lot because the Holy Spirit is a crucial, 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 crucial part of our faith. Now, Christ is the center of our faith, period. But the Holy Spirit is right next to Christ at the center of everything. In, our, in New Testament theology, I'm talking about the early church's understanding of everything. And, and every week what I do is I kind of put up the sing because we're, we're hitting on a lot of these fundamental aspects of Christian theology. Okay, so the first thing is that the Spirit is the absolute key of the eschatological framework. Now, that's a fancy pants word that essentially means the time of the end. But the important thing is, and if you've been here, you've uh, learned a lot about this, especially when we were in the series on the kingdom of God, that um, that is the essential framework of the New Testament. All the early, you see this in every single book in, of the Bible, of the New Testament, including Jesus' message and ministry. All had to do with the kingdom of God being here, already present in his life and ministry, but not yet, okay? And so we've, the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in that. And if, you're, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, we're going to give a brief review today because we're, we're going on to the next thing. Now, these things are all related. I should say that. They're all related, but we've been kind of focusing the last few times on that, this eschatological framework, because everything's to be understood within this framework, including salvation in Christ, okay? Which is what I'm going to start today. And there's so much about salvation. What I'm appreciating personally, on a personal level, about this series is because I'm, I'm, ta I'm talking about theology now. I'm talking about how crucial the Holy Spirit is 
uh, with, within our Christian theology, uh, it's making me revisit some of these fundamental <laughs> critical aspects of our faith, like salvation, which is the central issue of the New Testament. Arguably, that's the center. That's what it's all about, salvation in Christ. Now, it's not salvation in the Spirit, but the Spirit plays a crucial role in our experience dimension of salvation, and we're going to be talking about that. And um, probably, I don't know, knowing myself, we'll do more than one message on We'll probably do a few on that. This might even be a mini-series within this series, just like the eschatological framework was, because there's so much to salvation. How many of you have read The Final Quest? Yeah, I mean, come on. I see some of you guys. We had the Final Quest book uh, study this last semester. That was fun. See some of you guys here. Um, how many of you remember... Um, some of you might not have read this for like 20 years, but how many of you remember when Rick Joyner, he was at the top of the mountain and he went down to the level of salvation, which was the foundation of the mountain. You guys remember this? Then he went into that storeroom that had a whole bunch of different facets and revelations about salvation. And it was vast. It was a vast room and every stone, there was like uh, uh, limitless precious stones and stuff. Every stone represented a revelation within salvation. And Rick Joyner was like, we could spend eternity, eternity, and, we, and that wouldn't be enough to grasp the facets of salvation. It's such an amazing thing. Now, um, salvation, in my opinion, in my experience, of course, we're all, we all have our own experiences, so uh, perhaps I'm overgeneralizing, but, you know, I, I think salvation in and of itself, you don't really get much theology on salvation. I mean, you get the basics, like Jesus died for your sins, you need to repent and come to him and you're saved by grace through faith or whatever, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you hear that, but but I've, I don't think I've ever heard of more than one, maybe even one message on it, if I'm on it. Like, I'm talking about, like, you know, the uh, or a series on it, you know, or whatever, but there's so much you could talk about salvation and understanding it at a deeper level. Like, what does it mean that we're saved? You know, saved, like you could say you're saved from hell, but it's so much more than that. Um, and so I'm excited about that. We're kind of tr uh, uh, transitioning right now into the salvation part of it. And this message today is actually going to be somewhat of a transition message. Um, because what I'm going to do today is show you how salvation, is, in order to understand salvation, you need to understand it within this eschatological framework, okay? And so um, I want to focus on that today because you guys might have noticed I like to build. I build and build and build. And then so you, so you have to build a foundation, and we did that with eschatology, and now we're building a foundation with salvation. Uh, but you need, to, you need to have some uh, overview before you do that. And then the last uh, key is what it means for us to become the people of God, and that is arguably the central goal, is that God is creating a people for his name. Um, now, we kind of hit on that last week with the temple of the Holy Spirit as a gathered assembly, um, but we're going to be going more into that at some point. Um, but today what I want to do is just give a brief review. Now, if you've been here, you all know this hopefully by now, um, but it's good to review, just, just to hit it home, because this is so important. If you're here for the Kingdom of God series, and I made this audacious statement, and I think it's true, that in order to understand, and you'll see this today even, in order to understand the entire New Testament, it helps tremendously to have this framework, because they're all working from this framework. Okay, so if you're interested, we went in lots of detail on this in the Kingdom of God series, talking about the Jewish ideas of, of the end and that kind of thing um, back in the fall. But anyway, 
So, what is eschatology? I mentioned this already. It has to do with the time of the end. And specifically, it refers to Jewish expectations that God would bring a dramatic end to the present evil age because they thought this is the age of Satan. Evil, sin, sickness, injustice, unrighteousness prevail. So they considered this the age of Satan. And one day, the day of the Lord was going to come and God would overthrow Satan completely, usher in his kingdom, and it would be awesome. Okay, so that was sort of the idea, <laughs> briefly, that the Jews had when, when John the Baptist and Jesus stepped on board. Okay, so this evil age would be followed by the coming age, the age to come. And you hear this language in the New Testament throughout. Even Jesus talks about like, uh, using this lingo. And, it, and the two things, the two things they were waiting for is the resurrection from the dead and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those would be, in their ideas of the end, the two things that would signal the day of the Lord has come, okay? The resurrection from the dead and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, New Test the Old Testament look always has this forward look to it ever since the fall in the garden, this forward look of a promised new covenant, okay? If you're interested, we talked in more detail in the earlier messages, but anyway... And this would take place in what they called the latter days. The latter days. The latter days. And the prophets <laughs> called it the day of the Lord. But anyway, the latter days. Now, the crucial thing is, and this is key to understanding Jesus' entire message of the kingdom of God, which is the number one thing he talked about, hands down. This has been fulfilled in Christ. Because he was what? Raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit. These two things changed everything. Because that meant we're in the last days. That meant that all these prophetic words that we are waiting for are happening in our midst. So you see this in, in, on Pentecost. Holy Ghost comes. Fire, wind, speaking in tongues. And a whole bunch of people come. What is going on here? They're perplexed. Some of them are like, these guys are drunk. Peter says, no. They're not drunk as you suppose. This is to fulfill what was spoken by Joel the prophet. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. This is happening in our midst. This is what's going on, everybody. And what happened? 3,000 people get saved. Why? Because they were all waiting for this. And they're like, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit's being poured out. All of these hundreds of years, we've been waiting for this to happen, and it's happening. What must we do to get saved? Jesus Christ. He's your Messiah. Oh my goodness, we royally messed up. 3,000 people get saved. What's in, yeah, I'll talk about that another day. But anyway, what's the point? We're in the last days, right? That's what he says, in the last days. This is fulfilling that. That's, so that's what the early church understood. We're in the last days. Okay, and, and what, I, what I've mentioned is one of the things I think that is, makes them so different from us, unfortunately, is that they had this perspective and we don't. The urgency they had the, that, oh my goodness, we're in the last days. We need to spread the gospel of the kingdom, the fact that the kingdom's ushered into this present evil age. Right? That's, that's what Jesus said. Preach the message, the gospel of the kingdom. Not the gospel of salvation, the gospel of the kingdom. Salvation is to be understood within the message of the kingdom of God, which is a lot bigger than just salvation, but you'll see that salvation is crucial. 
Okay, so the point is through the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, God himself set the future age to come in motion. The beginning of the end is here right now. Okay, so that everything in the present is determined by the appearance of the future. Everything. This influenced everything for the early church, okay? So the resurrection of Christ marked this beginning of the end and the turning of the ages, the age to come they were waiting for. Now, the interesting thing is, so, so what's the dealio? Notice the message. So Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the resurrection, that means our resurrection is guaranteed because the resurrection happened. That's why in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he calls it Jesus was the first fruits of our resurrection. The first fruits of the final harvest. We're all going to be, it, we're, it's, it's a done deal. It's a done deal, okay? And the gift of the Spirit, okay? But we're living in between the times. So that happened, but we're not all raised from the dead yet, <laughs> okay? So, the point is, already the future coming of the kingdoms happened, but it's not yet been completely fulfilled. So we're in this in-between state where Jesus' first coming set this future age to come, the kingdom in motion, but we're awaiting the final consummation at his second coming. They thought the second coming was going to be the first coming, that Jesus would come in power and overthrow all of his enemies and no, that's going to happen at the second. So they had to reshift their eschatology, their ideas of the end, when this happened. But the key point is, as Christians, we're called to be living the life of the future now, in the present evil age. That's what we're called to do. So I have this graph that I always put up because it helps. You can think of it in terms of D-Day and V-Day. D-Day determined. D-Day, 1944, beaches of Normandy. The war was over on that day. They knew. It's not if, it's when, okay? The, fine, the war was over, but it fought and won on D-Day. took 11 months for the completion to happen on V-Day. Nonetheless, they knew this was it. That's why that's such a big deal. In fact, I think there's a new movie on that, to, isn't there? Anyway, in the theater right now. But anyway, D-Day, big deal. Most people can quote that. How many know the date of D-Day? Some people, but a lot of people know that date. They don't know the date of V-Day. <laughs> Part of the complication is there was the war in Japan happening too with Americans. But anyway, the point is the fall happened in the garden. Evil came in. Then it became known as Satan's age, according to the Jewish ideas. So we're living in this present evil age, the kingdom of darkness. What happened at the first coming of Christ, he ushered in the kingdom. Jesus said, hey, guys, kingdom of God's near. Repent. Believe the good news. The kingdom is here with me in my ministry. Right? And he, he would quote these Old Testament uh, promises about it, like Luke 4. Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to blah, blah, you know, on, 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 preach the good news of the poor. This is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the kingdom is here right now. In Matthew 12, cast out demons. He, and what does he say? If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. Because they knew when the Spirit came back, that meant the kingdom was here. Okay. So we're in the last days. The age to come has come, but there's still sin, there's still sickness, there's still disease, there's evil everywhere, there's still injustice, there's still unrighteousness. What is going on? They had to radically shift, because they thought the day of the Lord was going to be a day of the Lord, a big catastrophic end, would end history and usher in this new age. They're like, wait a minute. 
That didn't happen. So how do you explain that? And you see this threaded throughout the entire New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, that it's happened, but it's not yet been consummated. We're still waiting for the completion to happen. Okay, so we're in this already not, this awkward already not yet stage. Where we are God's end time people, eschatological people, fancy pants word, by the Spirit, trying to show people what heaven is like. We're, because now that we have the Spirit, we're supposed to live by the Spirit. And the age to come was known as the age of the Spirit. So we're supposed to be led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, operate in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. All these imperatives Paul has. Why? So we can show people what heaven is like. Okay, so we're supposed to be living as God's heavenly people on earth right now. In fact, in Philippians 3.20, Paul explicitly says, you guys are citizens of heaven. You're citizens of heaven now. Live like it. Show people what heaven's like. Preach the gospel of the kingdom. Good news. Kingdom of heaven is here now. Okay? So, then... Second coming of Christ, that's going to be the day, the final day where the final judgment will happen. Then it'll be awesome. Age of the Spirit. We're now in the age of the flesh. Okay, so from the New Testament perspective, the whole Christian existence and theology has this eschatological tension at its basic framework that already not yet, you're going to see this today because we're talking about salvation now. Okay, so this perspective influenced their entire theological outlook, how they thought and talked about Christ, salvation. I have the highlight because that's what we're talking about. The church, ethics, the present, and the future. All of this, they understood within this framework. All right. So, today, we're, like I said, we're using this message as a transition to show how salvation fits into this end-time framework. Eschatological reality. Already not yet. So, the early church's entire understanding of salvation is first this end-time eschatological already not yet reality. It's here, but it's not here completely. <laughs> Okay, so justification, now this is important to understand, for the early church and their Jewish history was thoroughly eschatological. In other words, this was going to happen at the end. This is what God's going to come, then judgment day is going to happen, okay, in the end. And what he's going to do is he's going to judge, justify the righteous, that's justification, and condemn the wicked. That was their idea of the end, the Jewish idea. Before Jesus came. Okay. Now, the early church came to understand that all of us are the unrighteous. See, they thought Jews were the righteous. Gentiles were the unrighteous. Okay? Pagans. But then they came to realize, wait, everyone's unrighteous. Both Jews and Gentiles. And that justification has already happened, and it's taken place in Christ. Okay? So it's already happened in death and resurrection of Christ. In other words, it's been removed from our future and has been put in our past. So God already declares us righteous. So we're now those who've already experienced God's gracious justification. And by the way, justification simply means the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. And since it's by grace, there's nothing. There's nothing you can do about it except trust God. That's a synonym of faith, trusting God. That's all you can do. <laughs> it's all by grace, okay? So... The condemnation has been taken from the future and has already been placed in Christ in the past. And I'm going to show you a verse on this, just to give you an example. Romans 8, 1 to 4. There is therefore now, present tense, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus now. 
That's actually, he's, I know we use that a lot, and I use it even a lot to say, oh, if you're feeling condemned, that's not of the Lord. He's actually talking about the final condemnation, just so you know, like the final uh, eternal condemnation. But anyway, now there's no condemnations for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, look at this, the law of the Spirit. You'll notice the Spirit and Jesus Christ, the, the Trinity, and we're going to talk about this someday, probably next time, I don't know, has to, they're, they're all involved with salvation, okay? But you see this. Those who are in Jesus Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, look at this, God, the Father, sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, look, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's the point? We're supposed to live according to the Spirit. Because... When Paul, this whole flesh-spirit contrast that Paul always gives has to do with what I was talking about with the age to come and the present age. The present evil age is known as the age of the flesh. You're acting like people of the flesh. The age of the spirit, the age to come, that's why he says you're supposed to live in the spirit. Live from that age, in the present evil age, okay? So we now, through Christ, live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So, so now there's no condemnation. Right now, the future's been removed and put in the past, okay? But it's not yet. <laughs> Look at this verse, for instance, Galatians 5.5. And I have through the Spirit, because it's the Spirit series. Through the Spirit, notice how connected he is with all this stuff. Through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Wait a minute, I thought you said we're already righteous. I thought you said we're already justified. That's what justification means. And Paul's saying, actually, no, by the Spirit, we're waiting for the final righteousness. <laughs> what? That's what I'm talking about. Already, not yet. It's all throughout the Bible. Okay? So, so we're waiting for this final justification to still happen. That's why, remember, if you, if you remember, we talked about the eternal perspective, a whole series on it. Because that's still happening. Judgment Day is still happening. But you may have noticed, salvation is sometimes, right? We're talking about salvation. Talked about a past tense Present tense and future. I'm going to show you this because that's how they understood this. We're between the times. So sometimes the language of salvation is a past event. I have a couple of references there for you, but I'm going to read them. So this is Ephesians 2, 5, and 8. Look at this. Made, you're made alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. Past tense. And then verse 8, it says, For it's by grace you have been saved. Right? Past tense. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith in the past, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You see that? It's a talking past tense. This has happened already. However, the language of salvation is also a present process sometimes. For example, you see this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, you see, it's a process. We're being saved is by the power of God. Past tense, present process, but also the language of salvation is sometimes the conclusion to a process. Okay, the future. So just for one example, uh, Romans 5, 9, 11. Since we've now, present tense, been justified by his blood, how much more shall, future tense, shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Future. For what if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son? Past tense. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Future. 
Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And just here's Jesus. He talks about the future as well. Matthew 24, 12, and 13, he says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, which is intense. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You see that? Future tense. Okay. So you can, hopefully just in those couple examples, you can see how understanding salvation, it's crucial to have this perspective to understand salvation. Because I'm going to show you in a, minute, in a couple minutes that even in the same portion of Scripture, even in the couple ones I read just now, he talks past tense, present tense, future tense, past tense, future all over the place. Paul's always doing this. And it seems confusing. Why? Because he had this perspective. When you realize this is the perspective they're coming from, it's, oh, that's why. Because it has already happened, but it hasn't been completed, and therefore it's still process. You know, like if, if you can get to come to terms with that, it helps you understand salvation. Okay? So, so it's understanding this from this end time eschatological perspective can help you make sense of a whole bunch of scriptures. Now you can, now I'm going to spend more than a minute on this because this is so important. And, and again, I'm building a foundation for where we're going in this series. Okay? So today's kind of a foundational transition message, um, laying some foundational stuff. But you can see this already not yet reality with other metaphors of salvation as well. Now I'm kind of, I'm going on a side here because it's important. Talking about the metaphors for salvation. Okay? Salvation's multifaceted. And it's conveyed with a whole bunch of different metaphors. And if you don't know what a metaphor is, it's just a figure of speech. And this is throughout Scripture. If you can find salvation to one metaphor, you're missing a whole bunch. That's why I said salvation's a big thing. It's multifaceted. You can't do it in one message or one sentence. Well, you could, but I'm talking about it's good to, if you're going to fully understand what salvation is, it's important to understand what I'm about to talk about, the multifaceted nature of it. So each metaphor emphasizes a significant aspect of the believer's new relationship with God. You'll see this. Okay, so I'm just going to give you a few examples. Here's some examples of metaphors or images used for salvation. And I have just some scriptural references. I could have gave more, but just so you can see it. Redemption. Reconciliation. Propitiation. Justification. Washing. Sanctification. Adoption. Rebirth. And I could have gone on. Okay? These are just a few metaphors, significant metaphors that are used throughout Scripture talking about salvation. Now, I want to make this clear. By metaphor, I don't mean that they don't express reality. Okay? That's an important point. Metaphors always say something about reality. So I'm not saying this is not like a reality because he's using a metaphor. You'll notice that biblical writers often say things metaphorically because the reality that they're trying to express is so much bigger than any one metaphor is capable of expressing. That's why you see all these different metaphors for salvation because it's such a big thing. It's so amazing. And one single metaphor, one single image would not do justice to it at all. Okay, And so Paul uses a whole bunch of different terminology for that reason. Like Rick Joyner said in the final quest, you could spend eternity and you wouldn't be able to exhaust the amazing facets of salvation. It's phenomenal. Okay? So, what I wanted to mention is the, this whole variety. The reason is because of salvation. This suggests that no single one would adequately express the reality of salvation. That's why there's so many of them. One is not adequate. It's like giving language to something that's so beyond comprehension, that's so phenomenal. So we do our best, right? Salvation has too many facets to be captured by one image. And I'm going to give you an example because this is an important example. Talking about theology now, 
Okay, this is a really a teaching thing, message. <laughs> I guess all of them are, but... Talking about justification by faith. How many of you heard that term? Yeah, if you've read the Bible. Okay, so that's an important term. And the reason is, and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, because I'm giving you this as an example of how you shouldn't confine salvation to one metaphor. Because Protestants, I mean, probably most of, how many of you are not Catholic in the house? Okay, wait, how many of you are Catholic? That's a better way of asking. No, I mean, currently Catholic, present tense. Okay, nobody. So we're all Protestants, probably. Anglicans are somewhere in between, but we're all probably Protestants. Most Protestants have made this phrase. I'm talking about classical Protestantism now. Maybe not us, but classical Protestants, and I'm talking about Luther, talking about Calvin. They made justification by faith the center of Pauline theology, the central issue. They said this is the center of New Testament theology, this term. Okay? Now, what I want to make the point is it's only one metaphor among a whole bunch. And I'm going to show you this. And what's interesting, the word justification by faith, or the phrase rather, only happens when Paul's talking about the Jewish law. Why? It's a legal term. The only time it ever occurs, this phrase, is when Paul is contrasting it with the Jewish law. The only time. Okay? And it has to do with obedience to law. So when he's trying to argue, guys, you don't have to do law anymore because you're not justified by law. You're justified by faith. Okay? So he's making the contrast. Okay? It's, it's not his end-all, be-all terminology for salvation. It just has a specific purpose and a specific context of what he's trying to say. All right. Now, just to show you, if you're like, if you are classical Protestant, you're like, wait a minute, I thought that was the center uh, hopefully when I go over this, you'll see that that's, it's too limiting. It's not the center of Paul at all. Think, of, think about this. Because it's only used in that context, this phrase now is only used when he's, when he's trying to rebuttal or refute people who are trying to put law on people. It only is found three times in Paul's letters. Only in three letters. Okay? It's found in Galatians, Romans, and Philippians. That's it. Now, the verb to justify, that was, I'm talking, that was the phrase, justification by faith, but the verb to justify is only found in four of his letters. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, and Titus. And you can see the numbers there, where, how many times it occurs. The concept of justification, talking noun or verb now, is not found in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Colossians, Philemon, and, uh, or Philemon, or whatever, <laughs> Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy. In other words... The majority of his letters don't have this word at all, period. So how can you make the case that it's the center of his theology when he doesn't even mention it in most of his letters? There's 13, arguably, of his letters. Seven of them don't have it, that word at all. Now, also, justification is not found in any of Paul's creedal expressions of Christian faith. So, so every once in a while you see a, an amazing creedal expression. For a perfect example is in Titus 3, 4 to 7. Doesn't mention this at all. Now if it was the center of our faith, the center of his theology, you would think that he would put that as a crucial key to Christian faith, wouldn't you? Right? In other places, and I'm going to show you one example, justification is simply only one metaphor listed among a whole bunch of others. It's one facet of salvation is the point. Okay? It's, it's, salvation is so multifaceted. 
Okay, so the key point is this metaphor is way too narrow to serve as the central focus of Paul's theology and Christian theology. So, so the cool thing is, <laughs> if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, they, this phrase, justification by faith, was like the motto. That was what fueled, <laughs> that's what fueled the Reformation is that phrase. That was Luther's phrase, man. Okay? So, so thank God... Thank God that that, that and, and to be sure, that is a central part of Paul's thinking, okay? Justification. I'm just trying to make the point that's not the central core issue that Paul deals with in regards to our faith. It's too limiting. Too much is left out if you only confine it to that. So the key point is that different metaphors are used to express different facets of salvation. Now, now this is important. In almost every case, the choice of metaphor is related to the perspective on the human condition that's being addressed in context. Okay, you're gonna, I'm going to give you some examples. Like I already did, actually, with justification. It only, justification by faith only occurs when Paul's talking about the law. That's the case with all of these metaphors. He's trying to make a point contrasting, in context, the human condition that's being dealt with at the time. And I'll show you an example if you're not sure what I'm talking about. But the images tend to be used in keeping with the emphasis of the moment that Paul's arguing, okay, in the moment, in the context. So the point in context is what's the issue. See, the, the reason I'm saying this is a lot of people come up with systematic theology about the order of salvation and all this stuff. And if you look into it, Paul would have no clue what we're talking about. Because he'd be like, what are you talking about? I just threw out a bunch of metaphors, and I just so happen to put it in this order. And if you look here, it's a different order. So, so my point is, it's important for us to, look, we're talking about theology. It's important for, for us to know. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's really intentional on Paul's part what he's doing. And sometimes it's not good to take it and make whole theologies out of it because, um, anyway. Here's some examples in context. Whenever Paul talks about redemption, he's responding to being enslaved to sin. It's a metaphor about slavery, an amazing metaphor about slavery, right? You've been redeemed as if, you know how slaves, in those times, slaves could be redeemed and then they get freedom. So when Paul's talking about being enslaved to sin, he uses this term, redemption. You've been redeemed from slavery to sin. Um, justification, what are you talking about? This responds to our guilt being before God's law. Reconciliation responds to our being God's enemies. It has to do with like the terminology, like war and hostility. So when he's talking about being God's enemies, for instance, in Romans 5, he uses this terminology, reconciliation. You've been reconciled even though you're once his enemies. Propitiation, response to being under God's wrath. It has to do with the sacramental or sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the atonement. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice for our sins, propitiation. So when he's talking about that, that's the word he uses. Sanctification, response to our being unholy. Okay, it was the word used for uh, cleaning the uh, utensils in the temple. You sanctified them. You set them apart for holy purposes. Washing responds to our being unclean. You're washed of sin. On and on and on. You see, I hope that you're, you're, you're uh, getting what I'm trying to say here. So, what I'm going to show you is one example here. The following example shows us three things. These are three points I want to uh, emphasize in this. That salvation is understood as is from already, not yet. In the same passage, you see that. That Paul uses a whole bunch of different metaphors to try and express different facets of salvation in the same verse. And you'll notice justified is only one of them of three, and that the choice of metaphors are related to the immediate context. Here we go. 
1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? (laughs) Talking future tense now. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanders, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Future. And that's what some of you were past. But look at this. But you were, past tense, washed. There's one metaphor. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Notice the, the Trinity is through the name of our Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. That's why it's relevant to the Spirit series. He has a crucial play in the experiment, experiential dimension of salvation. We're going to get into all that in, the, in subsequent uh, sermons. Okay, but, but this is what I want to point out. You were washed. Talking about context now. You were washed from the filth of these kinds of sins. Notice he listed a bunch of sins adulterers, idolaters, on and on and on. You were washed from this stuff. You guys were that at one point, but now you were washed from those sins. You were sanctified. Remember, that means set apart so that you won't be involved with these kinds of sins anymore. You were justified, me, and in this case, it's, uh, like I said, it means being made righteous. Now, I want to say this about justified. <laughs> The reason he uses that in this context is because in the Greek, he calls them adikoios. Dikoios means righteous. Adikoios means unrighteous. So he's contrasting the word he used to explain these, what these people are doing, the idolaters and swindlers and all these people. He's saying, those guys are unrighteous. You've been righteousized. <laughs> yeah. I'm using that word for a reason. The problem is in English, we don't have a verb for righteous. Think about it. We don't. That's why they use this word justified. If we had a verb in English, I guarantee you they would use that verb because that's what it means. So the English translations use this word justify for this terms, but being made righteous, the verb might be righteousized. If you, that would be a cool word, wouldn't it? We should, we should tell the translators to use that. You've been righteousized. So what's he doing in context? He's contrasting to the unrighteous. He's using that terminology for a reason in the context. Okay, so in light of this, I'm going to just show you some examples now with different metaphors of salvation, talking about the already not yet eschatological perspective. Notice that this is in, uh, used in a whole bunch of different ways and a whole bunch of different metaphors. Okay? So the first, look at this. Redemption is already not yet. Ephesians 1.7. Look, this is the same chapter, just a few verses later. He says, In him we have redemption in the past, right? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Look at this, five verses later. Ephesians 13.14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, talking about salvation, When you believed, you were marked with him a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession of the praise of his glory. Look at the same chapter, same like portion of scripture. You were redeemed, but but you got the Holy Spirit now waiting to be redeemed on the day of redemption. It's already not yet. And then in the same book, this is chapter 4 now, verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Talking future now. 
Wait a minute, Paul, I thought we were redeemed. Yeah, you were. But you're not totally redeemed yet. The final redemption is going to be when you're raised from the dead. Your bodies will be redeemed then. Adoption. Look at this. Again, same chapter, just a few verses later. Already not yet. Romans 8.15, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about, present tense, your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father, right now. But look at this. Eight verses later, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Wait, I thought we were redeemed or adopted already. No, not yet. <laughs> you were, but you're not yet. <laughs> okay, why? Because they're trying to, they're coming from this end time perspective I've, I talked about. Already, not yet. Um, justification, we already said this, but I'm going to give you a couple of um, different examples here just to juxtapose them. Romans 8.15, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Past tense. Galatians 5.5, 5, for through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. That's the same righteousness, justification, same root word. Already, not yet. So, Believers, just to end here and reiterate, you can, I hope you can see salvation is to be, this is why I spend so much time on this eschatological framework. All the stuff in the New Testament is to be understood in this framework. And, and to understand salvation where we're going with this series, it's important to have this as a framework. So, believers live between the times with regard to the two resurrections. That's why it's already not yet. We have already been raised with Christ, Ephesians in chapter 2, which guarantees our future bodily resurrection. This hope for the future comes from the Holy Spirit, who is the evidence that the future is already present and the guarantee of its consummation. And you guys might remember, we talked the whole message on this. The resurrection of the dead and the gift of the Spirit and the metaphors used for the Spirit. Think about this. First fruit, sealed, down payment, the first installment of the full shabam. All, of this are, all these are metaphors showing this already not yet perspective. So, we have been saved. Ephesians 2.8, since it's not been fully realized, it can be spoken of this present process. We're being saved, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And it can be spoken of as yet to be completed. We shall be saved, Romans 5.9. And the New Testament writers talk like this because salvation in Christ is to be understood as a thoroughly eschatological reality. God's final salvation as people has already happened. It's already been accomplished in Christ on the cross of Calvary and his death and resurrection. But the future combination we, condemnation we all deserve is transferred from the future to the past. So what should we do in all light, light of all this? I'd like to end by asking that question. What should we do in light of all this? All right. What I want to say is this. For the, remember, I, sa I said earlier, and I've said this a lot, is that I think one of the biggest differences that between us as the contemporary church and the early church is this perspective they had. Okay? And I think if we can, this is why like, I like trying to spend time with this so we can come to terms with this because I think if we can, first of all, it helps us understand them and, and theology and stuff. But secondly, if we can adopt this in our modern times, we could make such a difference in the world. Not that we don't, but I'm talking about the urgency. Look at, just look at the book of Acts, how they tra tra changed the world, flipped it upside down because they had such an urgency. The kingdoms here were God's end time people. It determined everything that they did, how they lived, how they saw their present life, everything. All of their present life 
is conditioned by this twofold reality. That through the resurrection of Christ, the gift of the Spirit, God set the future in motion so that we're already citizens of our homeland. Just think if we could get that revelation. We are citizens of heaven. We are raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, dominion, power. The same power that's living in you that raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. If we could just, that's why Paul prays in Ephesians 1, 17 and on, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that we know the hope to which he's called us, talking about the age to come. The riches of his, of his glorious inheritance in the saints is his incomparably great power for us who believe. Then he says, that power is the same as the working of his mighty strength that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, dominion, and power, and every name that can be named, not only in this present age, but in the age to come. He says that. That same power is in you. That's why Paul says you need this revelation that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened by the Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. If we could get this revelation. The sa- Imagine that. Imagine we live this way that the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That he's above all rule and authority and dominion and power. And we're supposed to be living that way right here and now. So, so we're, we're supposed to be living out the future and the present. Okay, now, hence this, already not yet, this continual tension between present suffering and future glory throughout scriptures. <laughs> Talking about how we live now in the present. Look at this, Philippians 3, 10, 11. Just 10 verses before that whole citizenship thing. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, what, what, what I just talked about, and the participation of his sufferings. Both, already not yet. The radical middle. Okay? Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So we're to know Christ intimately, simultaneously in these two different ways. Both the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You see this in Romans 8, 17 as well. Now if we are children, then we are heirs and heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Imagine we got a hold of that. Co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may share in his future glory. I consider that our present tense sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be future revealed in us. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, right? He's the guarantee of the future. The first fruits of the Spirit already grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The Lord's table. Communion. We celebrate the benefits of the new covenant looking back on what made it possible in the past, looking forward to what it ultimately signifies, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Already not yet. The Lord's table is a constant reminder that we live in the already not yet. Last but not least, this totally, totally conditions our ethical life. And I'm going to spend probably more than one message on ethics. (laughs) talking about the Holy Spirit now. But look at this. God's people are determined not by the present realities, but by the coming kingdom. Ours is to live the life of the future and the present. I've said that a million times in different ways, but look at this. Look at how Paul addressed people. I'll just give you a couple examples. Someone was taking a brother to court, and Paul is livid. (laughs) He's livid. Letting them just royally have it. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 6. If any of you has a dispute with another, 
Do you dare to take it before the ungodly, the unrighteous, the adikoios, or whatever in Greek, for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Future tense. You're supposed to be living that future tense now. You see that? Everything's conditioned by the fact that you are God's eschatological people living in the present tense, the future to the present. Don't you know you're, you're going to judge the entire world and you're going to them for judgment? God's end time people, not yet though, future. And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Oh man, later on, I don't have this here, he says, Wouldn't you, isn't it better to be wronged? See, we're so conditioned by the values of this age that we could not fathom being wronged. What? What do you mean, Paul, be wrong? No, I want justice. He's saying, guys, no, you're God's end time people. Isn't it better to, to be wrong than to take a believer to the ungodly for judgment? It's better to be wronged, he says. You're supposed to be living the values of heaven now, the Sermon on the Mount. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's like, <laughs> do you not know that you will judge angels? <laughs> He's trying to get, guys, don't you know who you are? Your God's end time people live like it now. Values of heaven now. How much more are the things in this life? I talk. <laughs> I gave this example last week, but I, in this context, I think hopefully it, it'll click even more. Look at what Paul says when he's arguing. I, I'm ending on this. I, I just want you to look at this. Look at Paul. This is so weird. This is so weird. This is strange the way he argues. Why? Because he had this perspective. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 4. Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as what? People who live by the Spirit. The age of the Spirit, by the Spirit, now in the present age. I couldn't address you as God's end time people living by the Spirit. That's what he's saying. But as people who are still worldly. That's actually the word flesh. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you could... You were not ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready. Look at this. You are still worldly. Look at it. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere human beings? What? Imagine I said that to you. You're acting like a human being. You'd probably be like, I am a human being. <laughs> am I missing something? What you, what's that even? Why? Because you're God's end time people, you're supposed to be living by the Spirit. You're not human beings anymore. <laughs> new creation has come. The old is gone. The new has come. You're God's end time people living by the Spirit. But I couldn't even address you like people who live by the Spirit. Because you're living in this present age flesh still. And then he asks it again. For when one says, I follow Paul, I follow Paul, are you not mere human beings? Like, that's what I'm saying. We're so far removed from this perspective that it looks weird. Like, imagine someone said that to you. <laughs> that's a rebuke. I am a human being, Paul. No. That's the problem. That's the problem. You are not a human being. <laughs> you are not in the flesh. You're no longer in the age of the flesh, worldly. You are in the spirit, your spirit people living the age of the spirit now in the present tense, showing people what heaven's like. And you're going to the ungodly for judgment? Mere human beings. Now, between this, I talked about the temple of the Holy Spirit last week, but look how he ends. 
Fast forward to verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by what? The standards of this age? Talking about the present evil age. The age of the flesh. See, they were quarreling because of their human wisdom. And Paul's like, you guys are foolish. You guys are still acting like you're human beings. (laughs) So he says, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Foolishness. And how, how much are we determined by the values of this age? Right? Paul's like, no, the values and lifestyle of heaven is what you're supposed to be like. Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Showing people what heaven's like by the Spirit. So then, <laughs> no more boast about human leaders. Look at this. Talking about, he's trying to, Remember who you are, guys. That's his argument in both these, right? You see that before. Remember who you are. You're going to judge the angels. Remember who you are. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the world or life or death, the present, the future, all are yours. You're God's end time people. (laughs) And you're creating divisions and quarrels and fighting over leaders like people of the flesh. You're people of the Spirit. Everything's yours. Don't you know that? Because why? When you get this perspective, that changes how you live. Changes everything. That's why I spend so much time as if we could just get a hold of this. Reality. Then that would change everything. And it changed everything for them. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So our true identity is that we're citizens of another world and we live in this present world as a colony of heaven. The Spirit is the key to the future orientation of Paul and the early church. We've talked about this before. That's why we're called to live by the Spirit, the age of the Spirit, by the Spirit right now in the present age. By the Spirit's presence, presence presence-driven life, believers taste of the life to come, become oriented towards its consummation. Talking about those metaphors we talked about before, the seal, the first fruits, (laughs) the down payment going to happen. The future is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. It's a done deal. And we have to live in light of that. All right. Father, we just ask that the spirit of wisdom and revelation be poured upon us so that we'd know you better. And we pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we know the hope to which you've called us, the coming age, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power For us who believe, that power is like the working of your mighty strength which you exerted in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms far above all rule, authority, and dominion, and power, and every name that can be named in the present age and the age to come. Help us to realize we have that same power living in us. Help us to live in the present evil age, by the power, we thank you. You redeemed us from the dominion of darkness. We're no longer on the flesh. You say we crucified our flesh with its passions and desires, and that we live now by the Spirit. Help us to live by the Spirit. That <laughs> In Galatians 5, 6, you say those who are led by the Spirit will not gratify the lust of the flesh. Those who walk by the Spirit. Those who led by the Spirit are no longer under law. We thank you we're no longer under the flesh present evil age. We're under the age, the dominion of heaven, the, by the Spirit, through your Spirit, that we're called to walk by your Spirit, live by your Spirit in the present tense. God, help us to show people what heaven is like. Let your fruit just grow in us. Let us be continually filled with your Spirit 
at all times, let us be a people of your presence, a temple of the Holy Spirit that we're called to be a resting place for you, God. Help us to live that way and help us to understand and just get this revelation that we live in light of the fact that Jesus actually raised from the dead and that determined everything, our future is guaranteed because of your Son and because of the gift of the outpoured Spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, we just ask you to reside in our hearts, reside in this place, continually overflowing, filled, overflowing with your presence and your spirit in our midst, God. Help us to live as a colony of heaven, <laughs> showing people the goodness of your grace, showing people what heaven is like, the character of God through the Holy Spirit by your fruit. The gifts of the Spirit be manifest completely. The powers of the age to come, God, increase in our midst. We ask Lord, that we would live these realities, that they wouldn't be fables or just out of reach, but that we'd get this revelation and walk them out completely by your Spirit through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.